There are basically four ingredients to cultivating contentment in life. If you read the works of people like Leo Bromorsky, Haidt, Seligman, Fredrickson, even uh, clinical meta-analysis such as the World Happiness Report, there's a common four themes that you'll find. The first is, um, I'll summarize them as love, play, work, and ease. That's just an easy way to remember it. Um, love, we need to feel that we are connected to empathetic people that are emotionally tolerant, uh, with whom we can disclose our emotional experience and feel reasonable expectation that uh, what we express will be well tolerated and mirrored back to us so that we won't feel rejected or people won't shun us or go, ooh, that's a strange thing you're talking about. I don't get you at all. So you want to have, uh, in essence, um, safe, secure connections with people who uh, hold your secrets, are open to what you express, do not try to tell you what to do, but listen in a emotionally mirroring way that they... Uh, they hear what you say and they mirror the emotions back and they make you feel safe. So the second play is finding activities in life that are engaging. Engaging activities create what's called a neural state of flow where you're constantly uh, very much occupied with what's going on around you. Classic examples of flow are anything from uh, drawing, gardening, playing an instrument, uh, working with your hands, writing, uh, acting, swimming, uh, any biking, anything that has you fully engaged with the world around you. When you're in a state of flow, you are not in what's called default network mode network. Default mode network is a setting of your brain where your mind wanders around looking for thoughts. You're not involved in the world around you, so the switch, instead of going outwards, the switch of the cingulate goes up. And it's like, ooh, what do I have to think about? And guess what? Uh, the research of Killingsworth and Gilbert at Harvard in uh, their pioneering large studies of 2,250 people found again and again and again that it really doesn't matter as much what you think about. If you're constantly allowing your mind to wander, you will wind up stressed and unhappy. And if you keep your mind at least balanced towards states of engaged activity, a state of flow, you will be far happier. It's just a simple rule of thumb. So that's love and play. Work is the feeling that you're doing something for the, the greater good that you're helping the world in some way. And uh, the human brain has uh, ingrained in it, instilled, hardwired, both negative and positive emotional activations that reward you for doing something that's for the betterment of the pack with which you feel connected, uh, and create feelings of shame when you act in a way that um, feels that's damaging to relationships or damaging to the world.
what happens when we act in positive ways for other people is we feel the neural activations associated with uh, well-being, self-esteem, we feel good about ourselves, we feel we deserve love and we deserve support. When we act in ways that are fundamentally selfish or uncaring about causing harm to others, two states can arise. One would be uh, shame, which is a uh, emotion that's been instilled over the human evolutionary process that has reward that has allowed us to bond. Shame is specifically there to keep us connected with a pack. We are pack animals. If we don't feel shame when we cause harm, we generally then will feel what's known as self-justification. Self-justification is creating stories in your mind to justify why we've why you or I have acted in untoward ways. The problem with self-justification is that it doesn't really feel any better than shame. While people tend to prefer to, to sit around justifying their actions, when you look at the scans and you talk to people in clinical research when they've been filled up with, fuck them, that's why I don't... The reason it doesn't feel good is because it floods the left hemisphere with, it, with obsessive ideations. It does not, in fact, feel emotionally any better. In fact, it makes us feel guarded, defensive, paranoid. So either way, the results of acting to, the, to not being or performing to the greater good at some point in our lives, whether it's volunteer or working with others or being of service in some way, generally we tend to feel less self-worthy, self-esteem. Finally, ease is, of course, the ability to stop, hold, and create internally a safe container for our emotional activations so that we can basically not uh, suppress all of the painful emotions that arise during life. We can hold them, develop emotion regulation, and, and thus complete the circle of connecting with others and expressing our emotions. Without uh, meditation practice, it's very difficult to develop not only any way to regulate your emotions, it's also very difficult to get any feeling of being able to drop the manic uh, uh, sort of drive to accomplish, to build, to create, and that in and of itself can create an emotion of uh, stress and, and compensation that's difficult to sustain. So in general, we need those four things. We need to connect, we need to play in, in an engaged fashion, we need to uh, better the world, and we need to, at times, stop, pause, open to what we're feeling. Now, how do we do this? Ah, therein lies the question. Well, one of the great, um, factors that allows us to pursue these worthy goals is what's known as confidence, or in the Buddha's language, sada. It's a S-A-D-D-H-A. It means confidence. And sada is the antithesis of what the Buddha said was the great hindrance of vichikicha or self-doubt. 
that feeling that I don't deserve happiness, there's something wrong with me, I'm broken, I'm missing something, all of the delusions that keep us from really actively pursuing meaningful lives, contented lives, connected lives. So let's talk about confidence. Confidence is the ability to, one, disclose our true feelings, and two, pursue our goals in life in a manner that bespeaks a belief that they're attainable. In other words, if we have confidence, we'll go about straightforwardly, not in a roundabout, secretive, hidden or distorted or concealed way, we'll go about pursuing our goals with a sense of openness, transparency, and we'll enlist other people to help. It's important to know that all of confidence is relational. Now, what does that mean? There are some people who, uh, who want to believe that the personality is a global thing, that people are either entirely confident or entirely uh, timid, entirely angry, entirely this, entirely that. It's not the way the human mind actually works. The human mind is a relational machine. We act or we have sub-personalities that relate or perform differently depending upon which situations we're in. I'll give you an example. I grew up with a mother who was, I would say, secure in her attachment. She was emotionally open, available. She was supportive. She was always there when I was uh, um, in emotionally stressed state. There, was, there were certain things I couldn't talk to her about, but in many ways she presented a secure environment. I also grew up with an abusive, violent drunk of a father, who later on, when I was 12, suddenly became a Buddhist out of the blue, which made no sense, but I was grateful for it. Uh, in any case, uh, so I grew up with at least two different completely core relational settings. In one setting, with certain people, I feel a reasonable expectation that my needs will be met, that people will be attentive, that people will be caring, that I will be tolerated and I will receive some empathy. In other settings, I am extremely vulnerable, I feel frightened, I'm armored, I don't expect any of my needs will be met, and I will Ex uh, in fact, I will expect rejection, shaming, or abandonment. So I do not have a global personality. What I have is sub-personalities, as my, one of my teachers, Tan uh, Jeff, says. We, have, uh, we don't have a whole personality. We have little sub-personalities. Some people have their sub-personalities of the work personality, which is serious and humorless and then they get together with their friends and it's jovial and fun and silly and then they're with their parents and they're concerned and they're oh dad you're just being difficult and then they're with 
you know, so they have, they break down there. A lot of the subpersonalities are broke down by those kinds of circumstances. For me, I tend to see personalities specifically depending upon relational experience. So, for example, when I'm with macho men, I become armored, defensive. I don't like to uh, state my needs directly because I expect confrontation and conflict. I'll go about a whole array of subterfuge to try to get my needs met. When I'm with women, it's the exact opposite. I feel calm, I feel capable of being intimate, open, I can empathize, I don't expect rejection or shaming. So, uh, and most men I don't feel that kind of armoring. It's just a certain subgroup. The funniest thing is one of the person, people who uh, activate me is Noah, the guy who, <laughs> along with me, is like, a, you know, we founded and started Dharma Punks, but every time I hang out with Noah, I'm like, <laughs> so, uh, anyway. So what are the signs that we're in a relational exchange or situation where we feel activated, where we feel, uh, how can you tell? when you're in a situation where you're compensating, you don't feel uh, a sense that your needs will be met, where possibly due to an early relational uh, experience or abandoning scenario, you have come to adopt uh, roundabout needs to get your needs met that are often self-sabotaging. <laughs> self-sabotaging. How do you know? What would be the cues? Well. I've broken them down into some groups that I've noticed over the years that I've been doing mentoring with now hundreds of people. And um, uh, I can say that the first signs are the compensatory signs of defensiveness, self-justification, and self-aggrandizement. So situations where when we're criticized, we immediately need to defend ourselves or we feel a desire to explain our actions all the time, or we need to get uh, credit for everything we do. These are situations where clearly we don't feel secure. And when we don't feel secure, we don't feel a sense of confidence. Confidence is very much hand in hand with a relational experience of feeling secure, a sense that your needs will be met, that people will tolerate who you are, that they won't reject or shame you. So if you don't feel secure, you will probably become armored and you will start to use, you'll start to be defensive. And it's, uh, I can always tell this is a relational thing. Uh, when you go through years of Buddhist training, one of the things you have to do is sit around with a lot of other Buddhist teachers and you got to give talks in front of them and then they get to, to criticize your, your butt. And uh, not your butt, literally. They criticize you, what you, not you, what your talk. And uh, it's a little bit like, I guess, if people who go to art school and they do crits and they hold up their art and they're like, here's this piece. And some people will go, oh, that's derivative and utterly uh, emotionally shallow. And you go, really? This was, uh, I thought this was expressive and, and filled with uh, real raw emotions. Nah, I don't see any of that there. And you go, oh, okay, well. <laughs> it's a little bit like that. So I found that I could be present with criticism from a lot of people, but the moment it came from no, I'd be like, what the fuck? That shall not stand. Uh, 
self-aggrandizement is, you know, when we're in social situations where we feel an outsider or when we're with people that we feel might not like us or appreciate us, we might immediately call attention to our acts of generosity, our Today I picked up a injured pigeon and I deposited it on the street, um, seeking through compensation to raise our esteem in their eyes and thus we see that we now have more esteem and then we feel more confident because we feel more liked. So those are some signs. Another sign is, I've come to see a lot in myself, is rehearsing. Rehearsing is the, before we have to get into a difficult conversation where there might be conflict or where we're asking for something that we fear we might not get. The famous asking for a raise, asking for a vacation, asking for uh, a need in a relationship that you fear might not be met. Rehearsing is the tendency to figure out what they're going to see and then how you're going to respond. Oh, they're going to say, when I ask for more money, they're going to say, well, you know, we only have so much, and then I'm going to say, well, I happen to know that oh, and blah, 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 department gets just as much, if not more money, and they're doing less, and then they're going to say, well, yeah, but you're still not doing this, but I'll say, in fact, I am doing it, and then it spirals out. Now, the problem with rehearsing, other than you have to hear me go through, that was probably just... <laughs> a little bit disturbing, but uh, <laughs> the problem with rehearsing is that it promises us the, the feeling that we'll feel prepared. It says to us, if you rehearse, if you visualize everything that can go wrong, it's, a, it's very much akin to c catastrophizing another cognitive dissonance where we visualize the worst possible outcomes. In rehearsing, we believe that the more we can uh, predict the conversation and how it will play out and think of everything they're going to say and how we're going to respond, what uh, winds up happening, in fact, is we become less and less confident. Because the act itself of rehearsing in the mind embeds a lack of faith in our own spontaneous, natural, unplanned abilities to survive. I'll say that again. The more we catastrophize, worry, and rehearse for conversations or interactions in our mind, we are informing the mind we won't survive if we're caught off guard, if we haven't planned, if we haven't figured it all out. And that embeds a sense of vulnerability, a sense that we will not be able to suffice in life. There's nothing that builds more sense of um, confidence than going into a situation without planning it at all, without rehearsing, without... Uh, when you go in to a situation and just, uh, you know, just see how it goes, know what your needs are, state it clearly, and just be present and have good boundaries, that bespeaks confidence. Third is, um, there was a wonderful study, I think her name is Amy Curry or something like that. I can't remember her name. Amy Cuddy. Amy Cuddy. She did this uh, study, let me know if this is the right one. She did this study where she uh, watched the body postures of people uh, 
uh, as they performed. And she noticed that people who were assertive and naturally confident, they would have a body posture that would be open, the chest would be wide open, the legs would be, uh, you know, apart. There, there was the body of, uh, that was a big body, like this. And she noticed that when people were uh, demonstrating lack of confidence, lack of assertiveness, a feeling that they would not get their needs met, that their bodies would go into this kind of a state. And she actually did this wonderful study where she, with graduate students, she noted the students that were naturally expansive and talked a lot in class and sat like that, and she instructed them to sit, all tiny, guarded, small, arms crossed, legs crossed, and then she had the students that were naturally guarded do the opposite, sit expansive. And she noticed that very quickly their entire behaviors completely switched. The ones who were quiet when they sat expansively started talking more. It was simply they were following, their minds were following the body cues. That's why, uh, as Damasio says, we're constantly reading our physical states and figuring out how to respond to situations. So noting those situations where we go in armored, guarded, where our, our breath is rapid, where we're contained. Uh, finally, the tendency towards perfectionism in any given situation means a lack of confidence. Whether you're writing something, you're creating something, you're doing a short story, you're drawing a, a painting, if you need it to be perfect, if you can't finish it because there's this feeling that it's not perfect, what it means is that you actually have posited the uh, imaginary existence of ideal people who get things perfect. And you believe that people are judging you against non-existing stand uh, non standards. And you're actually acting out from a place of believing that you are less than other people. So the moment we find ourselves caught in perfectionism, it's not a positive trait. No matter how many people trot that out in job interviews, <laughs> I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> if any people who ever did job interviews had any sense, the moment somebody says, I'm a perfectionist, they would say, next. Because what that person is admitting is that, in fact, that they are compensating for anything but confidence or a sense of well-being in their lives and that they should address that first. So... Not that I'm on the side, by the way, of job people that hire people. That sounded like I was, but I'm not. <laughs> so, uh, <coughs> what do we do? How do we get out of these feelings of uh, expecting the worst, feeling that our needs will not be met, going into situations timidly, uh, sidestepping, over-preparing, uh, guardedness, uh, uh, basically uh, giving up on the first sign of not of somebody being uh, questioning. How do we develop a sense of of confidence in our endeavors, especially our creative and interpersonal? Well, three, um, three things. And I broke them down into stop, gather, and simplify. Stop, gather, and simplify. Now this shows you that I am terrible at marketing. Because if I had any sense, I would have spent a little bit more time and made them all start with S. And then I'd be able to say, and I'd like to bring you out now, the patented quarter three S's system. 
but the fact that I couldn't even be bothered shows that I have no future in writing a self-help book and trying to get this stuff all out there in the market. So for your benefit, it's just stop, gather, and simplify. You can maybe do the work and tell me what it should be. So, uh, stop. Uh, stop could also be slow down. Either one would work. Generally, when we're in a reactive fight, flight, or freeze state, when we feel, uh, when we're in a triggering relational experience where we expect somebody to be uh, dismissive, the first thing that will happen is that our reactions will become very fast. We'll immediately send, need to defend ourselves, to answer everything that's said immediately. The fearful uh, mind that's triggered by earlier re relational experience tends to be one where the amygdala overpowers the frontal lobe, which is much slower, and sends out signals based on, uh-oh, I'm about to be pushed out, shunned, set apart, and it will try to force you to follow the fastest ingrained response that the striatum happens. I'll give you an example. Uh, one of my own weaknesses is I, uh, I have a, ten a difficulty being around um, my own feelings of interpersonal disappointment. I grew up in a family where even though people would act unskillfully, it wasn't safe to express disappointment. And when my dad would eventually apologize for one of his drunken rages, he wouldn't. It, you had to say, it's okay. Or else, if you in any way started to criticize, then he would become enraged again. So as an adult, when people ever are in situations where they need to acknowledge they've acted unskillfully, when they start to apologize, I can feel myself get uneasy and immediately want to say, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. It's fine, it's fine, I didn't even notice it. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Go away, go away, go away, go away. Get the fuck down right here. Go away, go away. So... It's basically deflecting the uh, discomfort. And um, what we would, uh, I would do in a situation like that is slow down, hear what's present, stop, pause, think about at least two ways I can respond before responding. If I can only have one way of responding, it means that the, in essence, the reactive mind is one and I don't have free will. Free will implies that I always have two possible responses, not one. If I only have one way to respond to a situation, I have no free will. Free will is the ability to stop, to break the flow of events, and to consider how I'm going to respond. In doing that, in forcing myself to come up with a second possible response, even if I don't do it, I'm literally breaking the flow of uh, self-doubt. I'm literally forcing myself to develop confidence because in stopping the speed of the reactive defensive mind, I'm literally forcing myself to act more like someone who's secure. People who are secure do not feel the need to immediately respond to anything. They sit, they think about possible outcomes, they consider their choices. So in any situation where I'm activated, I try to go really slow. I try to have pauses, I try to wait. 
The second is gather, and that simply means we tend to be overbalanced and towards trying to get our happiness from other people. We can be very hypervigilant in situations where we expect uh, disappointment. So we'll constantly monitor people's facial expressions. Am I, do they like me yet? Do you like me now? How are you liking me now? You liking me now a little more than you did before, a little less? Are you, which, which way are we going? Oh, no, we're heading in the wrong direction. So the pulling the awareness back into the body, finding the breath, slowing the exhalations, slowing the exhalations, tones the vagal vagus nerve, goes up through the insula to the right orbital, uh, orbital frontal region of the brain, and all that movement basically tells you you're okay. You can relax, you're not under attack. The moment you start breathing with long exhalations, you're telling your mind everything's okay, I can be confident, I, I don't have to defend myself, it's going to be okay. Same with the body, relax the body, keep those shoulders really soft, keep that belly really pliant, all that will help you stay and develop the embodied state of being secure, being assertive. Three, simplify. We all carry around these long stories about all the stuff we have to get done in life, all the chores, the, the things we haven't done, I haven't paid the bill, I haven't picked up that from the store, I gotta go see that guy, and, and now you want me to do what? You want me to do what? See, the good news about keeping an inner, inner autobiography of your life is that it does help you to a certain degree make sense of your life and begin to uh, at times establish some priorities. It helps you have a running sense of your goals. There's a bad uh, result though, of having a running inner autobiography of all the stuff you've got to show up for and deal with. You know what that is? It's called overwhelm. Oh no, I've got too much on my plate. I'll never be able to handle this. I'll never be able to get this done. I can't, I've got too much. I'm overwhelmed. The reason why people so often feel that, when in fact very often we don't have particularly more on our plates than other people have at other times, is because we have a tendency to be over-reliant on keeping the running tally of everything we need to get done. Uh, if we can separate out each obligation and separate it from the inner autobiography what the Buddha calls Sakaya Ditti just look at it in and of itself and then break that thing down into the core constituent parts we find that we can get much more done with a sense of ease and confidence than if we carry around these stories that we're constantly fitting each new obligation into now, I'll give you an example as I have the same amount of stuff going on in my life as you do. We all have to get out of bed, we gotta exercise, we gotta see our friends, we gotta pick up stuff from the store, we gotta answer the phone calls, we gotta answer the emails, we gotta do with this guy and that person and what are you all about. And then on top of that, I get a uh, email from this place where I'm leading, a, I'm doing a retreat, and they say, in order to do this retreat, you've got to sign up like everybody else, even though you're not, you're sort of teaching it. We need you to go through this whole thing. And I'm like, outraged. Like, How dare they? 
Okay, they want me to fill out a form. Don't they know what I got going on in my life? I'll never be able to do this. 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 And then uh, I, I figure, well, I'm just going to for a moment separate and see what's involved so I can be outraged properly. As I said, I'm going to separate this from the whole story of everything and look at it. I go to the page. Literally, there's a thing. What's your name? I enter it and it says, push the register button. I do. And it says, congratulations, you registered. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> I didn't spend 10 minutes in my mind making a speech about the horrors of being alive and how I'm never going to be able to do all this. And it was pushing a button. <laughs> it was pushing a, a register here button. I would have looked like a complete fool if I had not actually gone to the pages and started complaining aloud about it. So separating all the to-dos one by one, just putting one in front, seeing what has to be done, break it down into what needs to be done now, doing that, and then forgetting about it. Relying on you know a, a Google Calendar or something to keep track of it for you, but don't carry the story amount around in your mind. The story of the to-do list, the stuff that hasn't been done, keeps us in a state of constant overwhelm and it reduces our confidence that we can get anything accomplished in life. So the Buddha noted that developing sada, confidence, is the core change that happens in the spiritual path. He narrated, in fact, to the god Brahma. He, didn't, he actually taught the god Brahma that when people confront the fact that there's stress in life, the only response that we need is to develop the confidence that we can do something about it. And from that confidence, the other faculties arise. We develop the desire to put effort in on our behalf. We focus on changing our lives. We become more alert and attentive to what we're doing. We develop wisdom. And it all flows, though, from the confidence or the belief that we, through our actions, have all that we need to find true contentment. This is important in, before I leave the meditation, a lot of people in our culture, because we live in a materialist, capitalist culture, and the idea is that, that you're given an, this implicit message that you are missing something, that you were born with something, that you don't have enough Tide or Fab for your clothes to be clean, that no, that you don't have enough this. So it sets us off on this belief that there's something missing from our lives and that our happiness depends upon getting something, accumulating having more, acquiring. And the Buddha said something profoundly different. He said we're not born missing anything. We have all the ingredients to build the happiness cake or to bake the happiness cake. We have all the ingredients. We have a breath, a body, a mind, feelings, awareness, consciousness, care, compassion. We have all the ingredients. The only thing that's missing is the, is the recipe. And the recipe is very simple. The recipe is always available to you. 
just listen to any of the talks I give or any other Buddhist teacher gives or just practice metta, compassion, try to be, um, to take care of self and others, try not to cause harm, appreciate life. These are the very simple recipes that we need. Nothing is missing. You're not missing anything. And when we realize that, when we realize that there's nothing we don't have that's needed to be truly content in our lives, then we can develop the confidence to pursue enacting the recipes on our behalf. So with that, find a comfortable seated position. So, just for this meditation, don't worry about trying to have a perfect, in fact, never worry about trying to have the perfect seat. Try to just find the most comfortable position and If you do find at some point during the meditation pain arises, don't just sit there motionless. Try to figure out a way that you can reposition the body as quietly as possible so that you don't disturb your neighbor so that they can't hear that you're shifting your position. And that can be done. It's possible if you're in discomfort to shift the position in such a quiet fashion that nobody needs to know. So you don't have to feel trapped into any posture. And now let's take three breaths just to bring us all together into a kind of alignment in our practice. So in the first breath, breathe through the nose, lift the shoulders up to the ears and breathe through your nose. And when you get to the top, hold it for a second and then breathe out through the mouth and relax the shoulders all the way down the arms as well. And for the second breath, breathing in through the nose, tucking in that belly so it becomes, your waist becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, pulling it all the way in. And then when you can't hold it anymore, relax. Soften the belly, big fat belly, big round fat belly. And uh, finally, squinching the face and any other muscles you like in the arms and the hands you can make a fist squinching breathing in through the nose and then when you breathe out relax the muscles in the face relax so everything is relaxed and now let the breath go to its own natural rhythm So for the first part of this meditation, we're going to be developing a settled mind. How do we do that? Well, we're going to sustain an awareness, an object of concentration. And you will be able to choose which object of concentration you employ. I'll give you some examples. 
you can keep the breath in mind. And one way to do that is to count the inhalations and exhalations. One on the inhalation, two on the out. Three on the inhalation, four on the exhalation, five on the inhalation, then back down, four on the exhalation, three in, two out. So you're counting from one to five and back down. And one, three, and five are always on the in-breath. Two and four are always on the out-breath. Try to make two and four longer. doesn't mean you have to, the in-breath, you have to extend the number you're on, the entire length of it, but try to make the even numbers, which are your out-breaths, as long as comfortably possible. If you don't like to use the breath as your object of concentration, that's absolutely okay. You can use a phrase such as a meta phrase, I love you, keep going. May I find true peace? May I live with ease? Make your own phrase that is calming and reassuring. Another object you can use is what the Buddha called Santinupasati. And that means bring to mind a time or a place when you were very peaceful, you felt very secure and safe. An image, don't go into the whole story, just hold an image. And while you hold this object in mind, it doesn't have to be the only thing in mind, so you can be aware of the horns and car sounds from the street, you can feel the sensations of contact with the floor in your body, you can feel clothes, you can even be aware of thoughts whispering in the background, that's all right. You don't have to get rid of anything to develop a settled mind, you just need to keep something in mind, whether it's the breath or the phrase, an image. That's all that needs to be done. Do it as, with as much ease and comfort. And if any time you notice that your mind wanders away from your object, don't add any frustration or judgment, just gently bring your awareness back to the object or return the object to your awareness and simply feel good about your practice.
All right, so wherever you are in this practice, just allow the breath to gently flow into the background where it's still present and you're still aware of it, but it's no longer in the front stage of your the stage of the mind. Now for this series of reflections based on the Buddha's ten recollections, you can use uh, mind's ability to generate images based on memories or just imagination. Largely, I suspect, we'll be working from memory. The goal is not to create stories, but just hold an image in the mind and just see what arises is, is felt in the body. To cultivate positive states of confidence, a sense of self-worth, a sense of security. They're all really interconnected. So I'd first like you to bring into your mind an image of yourself engaged in a skill, pastime, form of play, or an endeavor that brings you joy, an endeavor that you learned through practice, patient, repetitious engagement, something that you, through your own efforts, developed. It doesn't have to be something that we do at a professional level. In fact, it's better just to bring up something that brings you joy, that you picked up. Whether it's playing the ukulele, or gardening, cooking, writing a blog, painting, drawing, something that expresses and creates also a sense of engaged joy or flow. Some being people it could be skateboarding or biking or yoga. The Buddha called this kaganusati, just reflecting on that which we are grateful for. And then feeling how this 
sense of accomplishment, knowing that we can develop skills, that we can express ourselves, that we can be creative. And then releasing those and image or images. And now I'd like you to bring up into your mind an image associated with virtue. Someone who you've helped, or a situation where you could have acted in a self-centered way but refrained time you returned or showed up for somebody who was suffering. One of my teachers, a monk, once said that if we wouldn't kill another for a million dollars, we have something worth a million dollars. It's called our virtue. People lose track of that, but it's important to know and to connect with your sense of being virtuous. How does it feel? to be helpful, to express care, to feel that in the body, to know that. And then letting that image go, and now for Devanusati, bring to mind somebody who cares about you. Someone or something, if you have an animal, a dog or a cat or a turtle, that's good too. Any being that cares about you, that is connected to you, a child, a parent, a friend, a lover, a creative partner, someone that cares about your happiness, someone who wants you to be happy. So seeing that person's caring expression and open to the feeling I am loved. I am not alone. Last of all, let go of that image and bring to mind a time when you were caught off guard by life, 
unprepared, out of the blue, something happened. And yet, through your own intuition, your own awareness, attentiveness, care, asking for help, however you got through, you survived, you persevered. Just see if you can think of one time when, out of the blue, without the slightest warning, you had to adapt. If you could have a name or a label or an image, it doesn't matter, but just hold in your heart the idea. That you're not as broken or vulnerable as your mind sometimes tells you that you have, in fact, endured, that you have strengths, sometimes that can be easily overlooked. So letting go of all those reflections, part of the Buddha's ten recollections, and just returning to a mind that is appreciative of our endeavors, knowing that just having a practice where we sit and focus internally means we will be so much more skillful in our lives, will act less harmfully, we will be less seeking all of our happiness by taking it from the world, using the world's resources in competition with others. When we have a spiritual practice, we have something blameless and beautiful. And that's <coughs> worth feeling good about. You have something priceless.